welcome to How to Deal When the Shit Gets Real podcast. I'm Rietta. And I'm Connie. And today we're here with Mark Perella. So Mark, how do you deal when shit gets real? Or just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Connie, um, to tell you a little bit about myself, I currently reside in Los Angeles, California, specifically Hermosa Beach. The accent is from Massachusetts. I live uh, just outside from of Boston. Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> so... If you don't understand me, uh, get a dictionary from Boston, Massachusetts, and you can probably hear me a little more. Been living out here for about 15 years, and uh, one of my biggest passions is mountaineering and climbing mountains. My home mountains out here are generally the Sierra Nevadas. Um, mm. So on my weekends, I live and reside out there. Um, nice. I, I am a Navy veteran, uh, five years from 2003, 2008. I was in and currently I work and reside in the Los Angeles area. So did 9-11 um, spur you on to go into the Navy? No, it didn't. Uh, during 9-11. I mean, it was pretty close. It was oh, it was close. It was close. Yeah, it was right there. Currently, I was in college at the time and I was study abroad in Australia. So mm -hmm. when 9-11 hit, I was actually, it was 1130 at night in brisbane australia and i was at a bar so oh, living your boy. best life living yeah. the dream living the dream did the Had bar no turn it on. on i was just the, curious the bar did have it on and at oh, the wow. time everyone was staring at the tvs and looking up at it and there was a bunch of americans i was out with all of us and you know a guy came and looked at us he's like you guys are american we're like yeah he points at the tv and we see all we saw was oh there's a hole in the building and uh, you know, we just thought that someone in an aircraft mistakenly crashed in the building. We didn't yeah. know until the following morning when we got up that, you know, America at the time was, was under attack. Yeah, yeah exactly mm -hmm. what it was. And then it was just a whole different experience. The, wow. the gravity of it was severe, but talking to everyone back home, it wasn't as severe as everyone's feelings back home, you know, the panic, the mm -hmm. fear. We didn't get all that. Uh, yeah. We got more. Because you were removed. You were kind of removed from it. Yes. It's like watching it from like an outsider. You know what I mean? Like not, you're not an outsider or anything, but like you're watching it from a different country. It doesn't seem, you know. A whole different perspective. It was a yes. whole different perspective based off their news. You know, those people, they weren't affected as gravely by it. So you were left with a lot of confused emotions, feelings, and the only news you would get in of the gravity of the situation was from family members and friends back home, which at the time, you know, most of the communication was either through email or maybe a quick phone call here or there. You know, the communication mm -hmm. wasn't like it is today. So yeah, yeah, you didn't get the communication. It wasn't communicated as much. But um, it was definitely a serious situation. So, no, the reason I got in the Navy was after uh, my senior year, my girlfriend at the time uh, got pregnant with my daughter Aww. and I graduated college. I was looking for jobs. I always wanted to be a firefighter. I was a volunteer growing up. I was even a fire explorer before that. So looking for jobs. It was either as a firefighter, bless you. 
Thank you. <laughs> or it was uh, Massachusetts State Police. I took the civil service exam. I got a 98, 97 on it, but I didn't get in anywhere. And jobs were kind of sparse at the time when I got out in 2002. 2002 is when I graduated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the urgency of trying to find a solid income benefits for a daughter that's on the way, I decided mm-hmm. that, well, I can go back and, uh, you know, join the military, get 15 points veteran preference towards my civil service exam if I join the military. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm a join. I'll do five years. And then after I get out, I'll come back home. I'll become, you know, a, a firefighter like I always wanted to be. So were so, you a firefighter in the Navy? Because I know you nope. can do that. I was actually master at arms. I did uh, oh, three okay. years in San Diego base police. And then my last two years I did in Bahrain as a mobile security squadron. Bahrain's a, that's a, not cool. a very safe place to be. Well, I figured, you know, if I'm going to go to the Middle East, especially during the time that uh, I was in, I'd rather go and see the Middle East kind of with a gun in my hand with a little more defense on my side. You Touché. Know? Yeah. So I figured what way to see the Middle East than, uh, you know, tour it in the military. So there you go. That was it. Um, and I loved it. It was great. My experience in the military was excellent. Um, unfortunately, you know, what happened was after boot camp, I decided to marry my girlfriend at the time. Uh, you know, we had our daughter, uh, Hope, in October, and I mm-hmm. left in January to go into the military for boot camp. Um, once I get out, went to San Diego. That's my first duty station. And we got married. She came over. And then about two to three months later, I came home and my wife, my new wife had left with my daughter, Hope. Oh, Oh, no. Yeah, I know. Yeah. She was homesick. She just, you know, couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. Um, It's not easy. It's not for everybody. It's not. It's not easy at all. And I understand that. And we were young at the time. And I'll tell you what, in the military, you get caught up with a lot of that nostalgia that there is about, you know, the military, join the military, have a family, you know, travel the world, all that kind of stuff. And, and I felt like that kind of drew us into the decision to get married a little more prematurely. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was the best thing to get married because, okay, now I can really take care of my daughter. Like, yeah. All the benefits are going to be there. We're going to do yeah. this. You did it for the right reasons. I thought I did it for the right reasons, but at the same time, were we really in love? We weren't, you know, it wasn't right. But, you know, when you're young like that, you're thinking a little differently, especially when you have a a new life on your hands that you're trying to take care of. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I got left high and dry in San Diego and it was a dark time for a while. It was tough. Oh my gosh, I bet. Yeah, it really was tough. Luckily, I had a lot of friends I had a a very supportive mother and father, so they were there by my side. And fortunately, a lot of my friends from college actually moved out there. So having that support base of, you know, your friends that you met in the command, your past friends that you had in college, and of course, like a mother and father that were there for you, you know, talking you through it. You know, I got through it. I mean, I, I still think to this day, I may be jaded from it quite a bit. 
Oh and, yeah. You know, even talking I mean, to my mother, Oh, even talking to my mother about it. She's like, you know what? You're great at goal setting and getting your goals, but at the same time, you're terrible at personal relationships. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know? like, mom's giving mom. you the truth. <laughs> I know. I, I, I love to, you know, she, my mom always gives me hell about it. She's like, you know how to pick them, don't you? You know, because <laughs> yeah. Spoken so, like a real mom right there. <laughs> that's it. That's it for sure. Moms are going to tell you what's up. They, they definitely will, but mm-hmm. I know a lot of people in the military have issues like that. You know, I see it all the time where, you know, things don't work out, you know, they get married, they start families and all of a sudden it ends in divorce, but you know, we get through it. So, uh, yeah. that was my first three years, but San Diego, I'll tell you what, you know, it was a dark time a little bit, but at the same time, it turned out to be a great time. I made a lot of friends. I did a lot of things. I ended up going back to school, uh, get my master's degree. Uh, yeah, as soon as she moved out, I was like, what am I going to do to better myself now? I'm like, I, I got to do something, you yeah. know, and, and I got to admit, I don't know. I think I was doing a little bit for revenge. I, I hate to say it, but I wanted to say, you know what? I want to prove to her that you I'm know, awesome. she's wrong. Yeah, yeah. I'm awesome. I'm going to be I'm awesome. somebody. I'm going to be someone. I'm going to do something, you know? Yeah. So I had all that free time on my hand now. So I started hitting the gym hard all the time. And then I was like, you know what? take advantage of the tuition assistance program. And I went back mm-hmm. and I actually got a full master's degree. My first one on my tuition assistance program. It was great. You know, That's so awesome. yeah. So it was a tough time, but at the same time, it was a great time. And then I did my two years over in Bahrain. And after that, I processed out of the military and got dropped off back home at, uh, in Massachusetts. Well, there you go. Yeah. So were you able to find your, um, ex-wife I guess wife ex-wife and hope like after everything was said and done with the military or is it just a mystery like they we have no clue where they're at no um we communicated after that you know um when I got back I came home from work one day and the apartment was empty uh my ex-wife's stepfather was there pretty much finished packing up the moving van and my ex-wife and my daughter had already flown back to Massachusetts. Wow. Yeah. So it was, you know, it hit me. So, yeah, that's, you know, he, uh, her stepfather, he, you know, he patted me on the shoulder. He, he took me out to Hooters to go. Uh, <laughs> I was like, Only like so, a stepfather. Could. Like, All right. Great. You know, I don't know if this helps or not, but, uh, you know, and then afterwards we communicated and, you know, we decided on divorce. Um, we were young at the time. That was the oh, thing. Yeah. And so, you know, the marriage was for the right reasons, but at the same time, it wasn't for the right reasons. You know, there wasn't that bond of love there yeah. uh, for each other. You what know? my I'm guessing- mom would say is that you have hope, though. I do. Well, for the most part, um, yeah. you know, it was a t- tough custody battle kind of thing. And oh, I, gosh. I pretty much lost on that. Oh, yeah. So unfortunately, I lost. I'm like bringing up all of the bad things right oh, now. Oh, we're sorry. Talking- <laughs> it's, all right. it's all right. It's always good to talk about this stuff because a lot of people have trauma like this in their life. But it was one of those things where, yeah, we all do, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I lost a lot. The only thing I got in the custody battle because it happened and the divorce happened right before I was going over to Bahrain to get deployed was I had legal joint custody. And it didn't quite work out well where, you know, I, I'd come home and I barely get any kind of visitation or anything like that. 
you know, and the only time I'd really get to see my daughter at the time was when I'd come home and my mother was able to pick up my daughter, you know, from uh, my ex and bring her, you know, an hour and a half back to my house to have for a few days. Um, and then those times got tougher and tougher. And then eventually, you know, trying to send presents, trying to send things like that, you know, back to hope. And, you know, you get a message like, you know, they're not coming from you anymore. They're coming from our new father. You oh know. my God. Ouch. Yeah. The so, burn. Yeah. So yeah, eventually. And you, and you didn't have FaceTime and stuff like that back then either. So yeah. you can just call up and be like, let me talk to her and see her. You know, you didn't have all that then either, which didn't mm-hmm. help. No, you didn't have the technology or anything like that. No. You lack communication. So oh, I, sure. I didn't have any of that. And unfortunately, um, what happened was, you know, I got out of the military. Uh, I got a job back over here in LA. Um, you know, there was no, no more custody battles or anything like that. And she's like, look, just, just give up your rights. Just give up your rights. You know, that sucks. and I was going to fight it. I was out of fight. I'll tell you what, I was out of fight. You know, I was not winning at anything and I'm paying $827 in child support for a kid that I just don't see, you know, That's at such all. A bummer. No, no, no matter how much I fight. And yeah. so I gave up my child rights, you know, there was no point. There was like, the only thing I could get was legal joint custody. And that was it. So, uh, yeah, I don't get to see my daughter. It's a bummer. It's okay. It's all right. I mean, I talk about getting real day. though, man. I'll tell you. Yeah, we're getting real right here. So I don't get to see my <laughs> I didn't daughter. I didn't even know we were getting real and we got real. <laughs> I guess we're getting real. We're getting real right off the bat. We haven't even gotten into, you know, the nitty gritty of climbing, but, uh, yeah. And, um, that was a big thing for me. Uh, it hurt quite a bit. And, you know, I found out later on and stuff that, um, you know, she didn't even know who I was for a while until my ex got divorced from her last, um, husband. And then Uh she gave, she gave me a phone call and said, hope knows who you are. And I'm just like, what, what do you mean? She knows who I am. Of course she knows who I am. She's like, no. And she told me that she was telling hope that, you know, the other guy was the father. Oh my goodness. And then once they got, I don't like your ex, by the way, (laughs) sorry, you know, that's how I would have chosen to handle things. Okay. I'm just going to leave it at that. I mean, I get it. It's hard because obviously, I mean, my husband's in the military. I understand that it's not easy, but that doesn't mean we can't be copacetic either. That's the thing, you know, but you know, and I, of course I don't like it too much either at all. But at the same time, I've learned to forgive because, you know, my ex, although it didn't work out well, she raised one hell of a daughter. She's amazing. She's absolutely gorgeous. She's successful. You know, she got a full ride to go, uh, you know, play soccer. She's one of the best soccer players. I guarantee she's going to be one of the best soccer players there is out there. But anyway, they did a good job, you know, and she loves her mom very much. So as much as, yeah. So it worked out pretty well, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So since we're going to switch gears a little, what about your love for climbing? Where did your mountaineering come from? Well, I have to say that the first time I think I fell in love with climbing was when I was with my family and we were driving by Peakham Notch up in New Hampshire by Mount Washington. And I just remember being in the back of the car and just looking up at this beautiful mountain, Mount Washington. And I saw a rock up there and I was just like, you know what? I want to be up there. I want to, I want to go up there, 
You know, I just had this strong desire for it. And, you know, I think that's where my first memory uh, is of my desire to explore. Mm -hmm. Eventually in grade school, I got into Boy Scouts, eventually became an Eagle Scout. But throughout my time in Boy Scouts, we would go on monthly hiking and camping trips. So it just kind of grew from there. And then from there, I started taking my friends out. We go out into the White Mountains in New Hampshire all the time. I planned trips for three or four days. Once I got into college, it disappeared a little bit. I um, got distracted with uh, college, its activities and studies, oh, yeah. and got away from it. And then soon after that, I got into the military. And, you know, I still love nature. I still did little, little hikes and stuff out into the mountains, but nothing significant. And then I got a job out here in Los Angeles, resided in Hermosa Beach. And my focus, I guess, was more on the beach and more to going to the beach bars and everything around here, more of the social scene than anything else. Finally, that got old. And I said to myself, I I need to find more. And I figured, you know what? You loved hiking. You love the outdoors. Let's see what's around here. And so I started looking up hikes and everything. And I was like, wow, well, there's a Los Angeles National Forest. And it's only an hour away from me. There's mountains that are 10,064 feet. That's higher than anything I climbed back in the East. I'm like, let's go take a hike up Mount Baldy. And so I went and did it and I loved it. And then I decided, well, let's see what else is out there. And so I just started discovering all these hikes and and regional mountains and stuff around me. And I started getting more and more into it until my weekends weren't filled with going to the beach and going to the bars, but going and finding a hike and heading out to the mountains. I mean, both sound like excellent days, beach and mountains. I mean, I would be doing both personally. (laughs) You know what? I'll tell you, my favorite thing in the world to do is get up early, go up and head up to the mountains and go hiking, especially Mount Baldy right now is covered in snow where I can go up and go hike and play in the snow. And then I can come right back down to the beach and go jump in the ocean. Oh my and God, I say, that's crazy. Ah, living in California, you know, you got ah, the life. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's even kind of like it here. I mean, our mountains aren't as big. I think the highest mountain here is only like 4,000 feet, but we still have mountains and ocean, which is pretty awesome. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous too. You know, it doesn't always have to be the highest mountain, but just yeah. maybe the most beautiful or nicest hike. I tell you the mountain, I will miss the mountains here. Uh, there's they're nothing gorgeous. like us. There's nothing oh. like them. I mean, they're green as green can be. Well, what's a blessing is you actually are taking it in and getting out there and going on hikes on your own and exploring. Absolutely. And it's rejuvenating for sure. You know, that's what I find. It is yeah. very rejuvenating. It's therapy, really. Yeah. Yep. And Rietta would tell me, she's like, I don't understand why these pe- why people who are stationed here are like, it's so boring. And I'm like, seriously? Because I see all of her posts on hiking. I was like, there's so much to do. Because even non- one week when we went to visit, I was like, but there's so much to do. Because those are non-outdoorsy people that are like allergic to the outside that are like, no. They're like, hiss <laughs> the sun. I think people get <laughs> complacent too. You know, they that go too. to a place and they do the same thing over and over and they don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, try new things. Yeah, they don't want to try new things. They don't want to explore outside their little bubble of comfort. Very true. Know? And it's one of those things that once you do it, oh my God, it opens up a world of possibilities. 
you know, for me, it was first getting out to the Angeles National Forest. And then from there, it was going to the Sierra Nevadas, the Sierra Nevada mountain range, which is, you know, about three hours, three and a half hours away from me is Mount Whitney, the highest mountain in the lower 48 states. Uh, One of my friends opened my eyes up to that. He said, let's go out there and let's go climb Mount Whitney. We put in because it's such a popular mountain. You actually have to put in for a lottery for it. We put in, oh yeah, you have to put in for a lottery for it. Uh, If you're going to climb during the prime time, you know, I think Mm -hmm. it's uh, April 1st, all the way till October 31st. If you want to climb within that time frame, you got to put in for a lottery and it's tough to get. And I'll tell you what, the first time we tried to put in for it, we didn't get it. But we went up there and we did this other hike that turned me onto the Sierras uh, called Thousand Islands Lake. And I never looked back. I was like, oh, my God, this is beautiful. Oh, yeah. And then from there, I continued up. I did Mount Rainier and the Cascades. And then from there, I started going internationally. I started climbing down in Argentina. I did uh, Mount Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain outside the Himalayas and uh, obviously the highest mountain in South America as well. How high is it? I don't know. I don't know that one. Mount Aconcagua is 22,841 feet. Yep. It's a a high one. It's a tough one. No, you don't need oxygen for it. That was my next question. (laughs) Yes. Most people would ask, especially when mountains that get that high. You don't need oxygen for it. But it was one of those mountains, which was an expedition style climb. I mean, it was, um, I believe we were there for about two weeks, maybe just over two weeks. But it was an amazing experience and it turned me on to big mountain climbing. So So at what level do you need oxygen then if you don't need it at 22,000 feet? Generally, you need oxygen if you're getting into the death zone, which is roughly over 26,000 feet. Because at that zone, your body cannot sustain living for an extended amount of time. Generally, your body starts to actually eat itself. So it it becomes catabolic for the most part, which means that, you know, your body has a hard time. It it doesn't digest food as well. It doesn't all your bodily functions kind of break down because of the severe lack of oxygen. And that's why people use oxygen. And generally, it's usually around 26,000 feet, which is considered the death zone. Of course. So now that I was going to say, wow, that's a pretty crazy name for it. But now when you say that the body pretty much eats itself, I get why it's called the death zone. (laughs) Yeah, really? Yes. (laughs) You cannot sustain, you know, living at that altitude for an extended amount of time for sure. So you started doing all that climbing and then you eventually started doing it for cancer. So how did you get on that route? After a while of climbing and doing research and obviously becoming obsessed with it, you find a lot of people seeing mountaineering, especially big mountain climbing as being a selfish act. You hear stories about people being left behind, especially on Mount Everest where they couldn't make it back down. And all these climbers are just walking past them and not helping them out. Wow. And now it's debatable. It's very debatable. You know, even Edmund Hillary, you know, said it was wrong for it to happen to, you know, certain people. But then again, you have people up there that are fighting for their own lives just to get down the mountain and they can Mm -hmm. barely help themselves as opposed to helping others. And it's, it's tough to determine if, if mountaineering is a selfish sport because of that, or is it just based on 
sheer survival for yourself up there where, mm -hmm. you know, you can barely carry yourself down a mountain, never mind carry someone else. But I felt like, you know, the image of it being selfish is, isn't something I like to see from mountaineering. So I wanted to bring to light that it can also be for other purposes, you know, and it can be significant of other people's fights. So I looked at a couple causes and then eventually a fiance I had at the time was diagnosed with cancer. She was diagnosed with leukemia and I was helpless. I was scared. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know what to do. So I started doing research and I found the Cancer Support Community Center of Redondo Beach. And we started going there and she would go to meetings with others that were diagnosed with cancer. And I would go to meetings for those that were sponsors. Mm -hmm. And it gave us the light at the end of the tunnel that we were looking for. It gave us hope. And they were just amazing. It was, it was unbelievable being able to be in a group and sharing similar experiences and feeling like you're not alone and that there is hope in this fight. And it just opened my eyes. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing experience. And it's free. They give it to you for free. So I wanted to pay it forward. I wanted to give it back. And that's when I identified, you know, being able to give back the only way I knew how. And that was through climbing. That was, that was the only way I knew how to give back. That was the only thing I was good at that I knew personally that I could, I don't know, somehow help provide. And why not? You know, people run for cancer and do marathons and stuff for, you know, X reason. Why not climb? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right? yeah we, yeah, we had a lady on that. Um, she runs and uh, wears combat boots because of, you know, things that have happened and she put a purpose to it as well. So she uh, makes every day Memorial Day by running for memories of the solar. So same type of thing. I mean, you, you do what you know. Yeah. Do what you know, do what you love and do whatever you can to give back, I guess, you know, lift other people up. I think that's what we're all here for. We're all here to lift other people up in however way we can. That's you at know? least what it should be about for sure. Sure. Absolutely. Because some people not so much. No, <laughs> but we you try know, here though, on this podcast, we, we try to do all that, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and the ones that do that make just that little bit of difference. That's what it's all about. So oh, yeah. that was it for me. So I started that and my first campaign with climb against cancer, I attempted to climb Denali. So after Aconcagua, uh, the following year, I went to go climb Denali, which is also used to be known as Mount McKinley and is the highest mountain in North America. So it's 20,230 feet and I attempted it and I failed. Didn't make it to the summit, but at the same time, we raised a good amount of money and I had a lot of fun doing it. I went back the following year. I tried Denali again, attempted and failed, but at the same time, we raised a lot of money. And then after that was Everest. And wow. just recently in November, I climbed Ama de Blom, which is one of the world's most beautiful mountains. And that is in the Everest region, right close to Everest in Nepal. And we raised just recently uh, about $3,500 with that one. That's awesome. Yeah. So wait a minute. So you failed Denali twice and then we're like, well, I didn't do this one. Let's do Everest. <laughs> well, the opportunity <laughs> presented itself to me. So, you know, Everest was always a dream of mine. 
in high school, you know, I always thought one day I'm going to climb Everest. And then obviously that, that dream went away. That dream dissipated. It's like, I got to the point, especially when I'm in college, I'm in the military. I'm like, I'm not even close to doing that ever again. I mean, it wasn't even thought of. Yeah. And it wasn't thought of again until I started climbing the big mountains like Aconcagua and, and Denali. And I'm like, you know what? I'm putting Everest on my five-year plan and it's going nice. to be there. Like so. I progressed so much where I, one day I said to myself, you know what? I, I can actually do this. I think I can. So the second time on Denali, when I climbed, I didn't go with a guide group. We went privately. There was four of us. And one of the people that came with us is this guy, Pasang Tendi Sherpa, who was uh, Dave Hill, another climber that was on the team. It was his Sherpa when he climbed Everest. Well, he climbed with us on this expedition and we got back to Anchorage. He got a phone call from his friend saying, hey, put an expedition together with your guide group in Nepal to climb Mount Everest. And I was sitting across the table from him and he asked me, he's like, do you want to climb Everest? He's like, you're an amazing climber. You did awesome on Denali. He's like, you can do this. And of course, at that time, I still wasn't sure if I could climb Everest. It was on my five-year plan, like I said. But the opportunity presented itself. And you know, this time, I wasn't going to let that opportunity pass me by. I saw it. It was looking me dead in the eye. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, can We're you give going me for it. Can you give me a discount? What do you say? <laughs> and, and fortunately, you know, being a, uh, a Nepali company, I got a great discount and uh, he put me on his team. So I had to go so for cool. it. I had to go for it for sure. So did you ever beat Denali? Yeah, that's my question. And not why yet. not? <laughs> not yet. Like what, what, what happened with Denali? Like, uh, what, like what was like the downfall, I guess? I don't know. Well, you know, there were two expeditions there. So the first one was a guided group. And we got up to a point, but the weather, Denali is in the Arctic Circle. It is one of the coldest mountains on earth to climb. And mm. already making weather, sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, Denali, <laughs> and, and for Denali, some people, they will never get it. It'll be just heartbreaking for them. For other people, be, and, and mainly it'll be heartbreaking because they'll get terrible weather the entire time they're there. We're there for 22 days. We never had a window, a summit window opening for us to make it to the summit. There's oh. people that get up there and they got great weather and they go right up for the summit and they're like, oh, it, it was a perfect day for them. And it's like, oh, it wasn't that bad. So, so basically you know, the weather. <laughs> it's the weather. It's the weather that crushes you. So the weather, both times for us, mainly it was the weather. We just never got that summit window. Gotcha. Yep. Um, I, like, I don't understand <laughs> Denali, but you climbed Everest. I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> that was it. It was just poor weather. time, poor timing with the weather. And is there like a specific window that's like the best to go or something? And you just weren't hitting that window or it's just the weather's too gosh darn unpredictable. It's the, well, the weather's unpredictable up there. You know, you just mm -hmm. never know. It, it seemed like, you know, they would put out the weather forecast and it seemed like that window was there. It was always two days away. And then you go to the next day and it'd still be two days away. It's like you're chasing a weather window that just never actually Happens. showed up. It never it's happened. It's Groundhog no. Day. Yeah. It's Groundhog that's, Day over and over. That, that's what it was. <laughs> We'd sit at 14K camp and wait for that weather window. Uh, and on the second trip, we went unguided and it was great. It was a great trip. But the same thing, we, we thought we had the weather window and it just never came. That's a bummer. It was tough. 
It was very tough. Um, especially when number one, you know, you're telling everyone, especially with climb against cancer, I'm going to climb this mountain. I'm going to climb it for cancer and I'm going to get to the summit. And then you don't. So you have a lot of that pressure on you. Yeah. The other pressure you have is your own internal pressure that you have in your own pride, I guess, where, you know, you feel like a failure when you, you don't make it up these mountains. But at the same time, I, I think the more I failed at not climbing in the mountains, the more I became okay with it. The, the more you had to learn to live with failure and realize that failure is not the end. It, it's the beginning. And all failure was, was just finding a different way to do it. That was pretty much it. So maybe this year I will be going back to Denali. There's definitely talk about it. Um, nice. Everyone knows that I want to get it really bad. And I've already discovered prior two times, many different ways to do it differently this year. Mm. So we're going back with a different strategy and hopefully this year will be the year. Well, we'll put the juju out there for you that okay, you let's that, that you make it to Denali this year. Fingers crossed <laughs> this time. Yeah, we should have some fun for sure. So what has been your favorite hike slash climb, whatever you want to call it, climb? Probably. I, I got to say Everest, I, I gave this one a lot of thought. I, I got to say Everest was definitely my favorite one so far. And there's multiple reasons why. Number one, obviously, it was always my dream to climb Mount Everest. So that's a huge factor. The other part was it was my first time going to Nepal. I've always read about Nepal. I've always imagined it. And finally, I'm here. And I'm finally meeting all these Sherpas. I, always, I was always enamored with, with the Sherpa people, um, their ability to climb how just amazingly generous and nice they are. And now here I am with them. And then at base camp, the people I was surrounded with were some of the best climbers in the world. And it's just amazing, you know, thinking me, I'm like, oh my God, it's like, here I am. And I'm climbing with these amazing people that have climbed all these awesome peaks. You know, I met uh, Ali Sadpara, who was like Pakistan's most greatest climber. I met, I met Nims uh, when I came back down from my summit. Uh, Nims Dai, who's um, the one in the documentary 14 Peaks about his Project, po uh, project Possible. I met him. Um, the Sherpas, the uh, Tashi Sherpa, who's climbed all 14 8,000 meter peaks as well, um, as well as just so many other just climbers that have so much experience being around them was just unbelievable. And then the adventure itself, you know, I've read in so many documentaries. Um, I've, I've just seen so many photos of the Kumbu Icefall, you know, climbing up to camp one to camp three and actually being there and living it was just legendary. It was, it was unbelievable. And then once you get to the summit of that mountain, it was, it was almost surreal. You know, the mountain itself, there's, there's nothing really technical about climbing uh, Everest. It's a mental game. It's all a mental game when it comes to climbing that mountain. Mm. And just being able to make it up to the summit of that was just so surreal. But coming down um, and actually realizing you're on the tallest mountain in the world and you had just made it to the summit, you know, coming down, it was just euphoric. It, it felt like 
I just want to enjoy every moment of it. And on the way down, I even told uh, Pasang Dava Sherpa, my guide at the time, I'm like, he's, he's following me. I'm like, oh, just go down. I'll, I'll meet you at camp four. Just go down. I, mean, I want to take my time. And I just took my time getting down. And I, I really enjoyed every second of it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, since you told us in the pre-interview, you got to tell everybody your almost blind story because they're going to want to know. Oh, the whole shit gets real story. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say Everest was a walk in the park by any means. You know, I'm no, of course not. No, I'm no professional climber at all. And even, uh, even them always have trouble, especially on the highest mountain in the world. But, uh, you know, climbing Everest, it was, we started climbing summit day for us started at nine 30 at night on May 15th. So we started climbing and we hiked through the night and it got cold. It even got really windy. I think we got kind of a blizzard that hit us and everything too. By the time I got to the South summit, the sun started kind of coming up. Dawn started breaking, but I noticed that everything was really foggy. Like I couldn't see very well. And I I'm realizing now that, Oh my God, this is not just uh, clouds. It's my eyes. My eyes are, getting worse and thinking to myself, I'm like, this can't be snow blindness. I'm like, the sun's not even up yet. I haven't even seen the sun, but I felt like I was going blind and you know, lack of oxygen, everything out there. It, it really screws with your mind. You know, it plays yeah. tricks on you. You know, it's not just climbing in a mental state that we're in right now here at, you know, sea level or wherever we're at. It's, climbing with lack of oxygen the entire time. So the mind's playing tricks. And I thought I was going blind. I told my Sherpa, Pasang Dava, I told him, look, I'm sitting at the South summit. I'm looking at the summit Ridge and it's this narrow Ridge and Mm -hmm. just off to the left, it just drops off, you know, and I'm not talking like a thousand feet. It looked like it was 5,000 feet down. I could see camp two all the way down from there. And I'm at 28,000 feet. And I go to him, I'm like, PD, I'm like, I, I can't make it. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to make it up here. You know, and I thought I was at my limit. You know, I thought this was it. I, mean, I think I'm going to have to turn around because I'm going blind. Mm-hmm. And he goes to me, he's like, look, this is not my problem. And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean? It's not your problem. You're my guide. He's like, look, you can make it. You know, he gave me that mental push that I needed. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm like, I might go blind. And I'm like, thinking in my head, I'm like, there's a good chance I might not come back. I might not make it back. And if I do, I might just be permanently blind. But everything that flashed in my head from that moment was ever since I was a kid dreaming of this, all the training I put in, all the years of mountaineering and just the whole culmination of the dream together. And I said to myself, you know what? Screw it. Let's just go for it. And he says, I'll help you. I'll help you get it. And then from there, I was like, all right, let's do it. And then it was one step at a time. And luckily mm-hmm. I didn't lose my vision. Luckily. Yeah. Probably about sure. an hour, maybe hour and a half later, I was standing on the summit. Now everything was foggy, but at the same time I was standing at the summit and he helped me up there. You know, he, he coached me along saying, look, you're doing fine. And I managed, I was able to switch my Jumar and attach the fixed line and it was okay. But there was a moment there where, I did not think I was going to be coming back at all. That's wow. badass, though, that you win yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you're like, fuck it. 
<laughs> got to do it. Mountaineering has calculated risks. Everything's about yeah. calculated risks. And you're calculating the risk according to yourself, you know, not anyone else. So I took that risk. And a lot of people will say, oh, you're crazy. You shouldn't have done that. You know, the, the summit's only halfway and stuff. And it is. It is only halfway. I had the energy to get back. I just didn't know if I had the capability to see on my way back. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. It would only have been a, a, a tiny minor inconvenience losing your sight. It's no problem. No Rub problem. some dirt on it. You're That's fine. That's right. You know? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. You know, there have been blind people that have climbed Everest. So I'm sure they're, uh, and they got back down too. So. That's amazing. Know. And I trusted my guide, you know, Pasang Dava Sherpa was amazing. Uh, all the way through that was i believe his 10th summit of everest and the whole way he was coaching me along and you know i trusted him i built a rapport with him over the entire time i was over there so that was a big that was a big factor there too yeah when you're with somebody that you know can beast the mountain and isn't gonna let anything happen to you that's always a comfort absolutely I think a lot of uh, my mountaineering experiences, you know, you have to rely on, it's a team effort, you know, you know, it's not just you up there half the time. It is a team effort, no matter what. Oh, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, my outdoorsy self is very happy right now. I found out, I found out several months later that it wasn't going snow blindness. What happened was it was so cold up there that my eyeballs froze. Well, uh, what? That's, that's something. A thing. That's that was, I never wow. knew it was possible. I never knew it was possible, but apparently it's either. possible. The wind chill that day, I think was negative 42. And I wasn't wearing goggles because my goggles had the tint on it. And we were climbing through the night, like I said. So mm. I wasn't thinking. You're like, I don't need any more darkness. Thank well, you. the sun's not out. I don't need yeah. these on right now. I yeah. thought my eyes were fine. I, I've never been in an environment where my eyeballs could freeze. That is so, crazy. Wow. And, Learn something new every day, man. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you what. I wish I researched that. And I wish I learned that ahead of time. But now I learned. And when I climb on my Blom. I kept my goggles on through the entire night. There you go. I kept them on the entire time. I'm like, nope, it's not happening again. I don't want to have to defrost my eyeballs later. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yep. So, yep. I'll tell you what, uh, you learn your lessons and you learn through experience just like that. That's crazy. Yeah. So are you ever going to do the the 14 peaks like the documentary? Is that on your list of things to do? Are you not that... I don't want to say badass because you clearly are badass, but are you not that like, I don't know, hardcore? <laughs> I think to get the 14 peaks, um, number one, you really got to have the ultimate drive to want to climb all 14 of those peaks. And you, it's a, I think you need an ultimately strong desire and know you're capable of doing it. Some of those mountains, you know, they scare the hell out of me. I'll tell you what, my I, I would love to climb K2. K2 is one mountain that I would absolutely love to climb. And that is a significantly more dangerous mountain than Everest is. It's the second highest mountain in the world, and it's located in Pakistan. And K2 is one of those mountains where if you look at this mountain, it's exactly how anyone would, would draw a mountain. It's, it's just a perfect pyramid when you look at this thing. 
it's absolutely gorgeous. But at the same time, it's absolutely horrifying as well. Everyone that sees K2 for the first time, which I haven't yet myself, has says it's the most beautiful and the most horrifying thing that they've ever seen at the same time. Wow. You know? But it's one of those mountains I definitely love to. There's other mountains out there uh, that are in the list of the 14, which, you know, scare the hell out of me like Annapurna. Uh, that's a big one. I think the fatality rate on that thing is 33%. Oh, so wow. at the time, no, I'm not going for the 14. And number two, I don't have the funds or the time. You know, I do have to still work. I have a career. And at the same time, I don't have the funds to put towards something like that. Uh, if I did, yeah, I might go for it. I never thought I'd say, um, you know, when I first started hiking Mount Baldy out here in my backyard, I never thought I'd get up Everest, you know, but you just never know what you're capable of five years down the road. So, absolutely, yeah, currently, I can't say I'm going for the 14. I want to do mountains and climbs of beautiful peaks that I want to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Now, the seven summits, uh, which is the highest peak on every summit, is something that I'd love to do. You know, I'd love to climb every summit on every continent of the world for sure. And that's cool. When I first started out with climbing Aconcagua and then going to Denali, I thought I was going for the seven summits you know, right away. But at the same time, I'm not in a rush to do it. Um, after climbing Everest, I saw Amit Ablam. I'm like, well, you know, this is a beautiful mountain. I'm like, I want to climb this one, you know? And I only got a certain amount of time off with, you know, I, I'm a regular person that has to work a career and do all that. So I can't allot for expeditions, you know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, are they expensive? I don't even have any idea. Like, are they, they're expensive to do? They can be expensive. Yes. They can be okay. very expensive. Um, I have found going with local guide companies is the better. Way to do it. Oh, it's yeah. the way, it's a way to do it. You know, if I was I to go, imagine. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was doing Everest, you know, I paid a fraction of the price going with a local Nepali company than I would have paid going with a Western company. And I found as well that the logistics and the experience of the guides is better than what you're getting with even just Western companies. You know? I was going to say, if you're going with people that are local and like grew up around that mountain, that, that just makes more sense to me logistically In anyway. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For, for example, when I did Aconcagua, you know, I found a cheap company called Inca that was uh, a local guide company. And I didn't have much experience with guide companies, but they looked pretty good. And they were a fraction of the price that I'd be paying for a Western company. So I went with them and it was amazing. The logistics were unbelievable. Like I had the best time on Aconcagua. We had, I think we had barbecue Wednesdays. We had pizza Fridays. And they're bringing in and they're making this amazing food. I had three course meals going on wow. their base camp and stuff. It was amazing. They had the biggest tents. They had hot showers. They had everything. That's and then awesome. I'm looking, I'm looking over at these Western guide companies and, you know, they didn't quite have that. And plus my guide, my guide had climbed Aconcagua. I think it was something like along the lines of 46 or 56 times. You know, he was the one that they went to when they had to do a rescue on the mountain. So he wow. had the experience and stuff too. You know, my guide company that I use on Everest, 
um, they employed Kami Rita. Kami Rita holds a world record for 26, I believe now, summits of Everest. And he has all the experience in the world. And he's working for, you know, this Nepali company, which is an amazing company. You know, if anyone needs any kind of advice on guide companies, I love to give it. You know, that's that's what I love doing. I love providing and helping other people out for sure, especially it. when it comes to guiding and training. So I'll tell you what, you know, do your homework and find those local guide companies. But at the same time, don't depend on the guide company to get you up the mountain. You have to depend oh, on yeah. yourself. That's what it's all about. You have to train and you have to train hard for it. Oh, Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. That all was... right. So one last question. Sure. What is your dream vacation? My dream vacation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why for, not? The mo- for the mountaineer, what would his dream vacation be? I'm going to kill Tom <laughs> in a minute. I'll tell you, it's not sitting on the beach drinking a umbrella drinks. It really? Is... That's fun, though. <laughs> I know. I know. It's just a different. Believe type it or not. <laughs> exactly. Um, for a mountaineer, it's definitely going to be in the mountains. And my dream now, I would love to go and climb K2 in Pakistan. Nice. That would be my dream vacation. That's the next one on the list. Yes. No, he's got to knock out Denali oh. first, and then he's going to hit K2. Yeah, really. <laughs> You're <laughs> keeping us all in suspense. You got to go knock out Denali, then come back and tell us about it. <laughs> I got I got a few on the list before I hit up K2. You know, I, I still think, you know, you never think you're ready right away. But uh, I want to build my skills a little bit. And my mother told me that I can't climb K2 yet. So, you know, I got to, <laughs> well, uh, yeah. you got to listen to mom. Yeah. 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 I don't want to give her any more gray hairs. So, you know, but uh, K2 is definitely the biggest one that I want eventually for sure. Awesome. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Right. Thank you so. for coming on to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great talking to you girls. You know, it's great being able to share my adventure with you girls and, I mean, if you guys ever have any more questions or anything like that with me, you know, there's several ways you can reach me if you'd like. Uh, number one, I have my website, climbagainstcancer.com, and you can always message me through there, as well as you can see what my next expedition is going to be coming up. And a cool thing that I got on there that I just did with my last expedition, my Abinablam expedition, was I started incorporating in uh, GPS tracking. So hopefully I'll be doing that with my other expeditions, but it worked great on Amit Ablam where you could actually see where I was actually located on a map. If you clicked on the map, you can see where I came from. And I usually send updates every single day about the expedition, maybe a little quote of, uh, you know, or a little progress report of what I did for the day for the most part. So you can find that on the site. Yeah. And at the same time on the site, if you feel like donating to climb against cancer, well, not to me, but specifically to the Cancer Support Community Center of Redondo Beach. There's a click here donation and uh, you can click there and they are a nonprofit. So not only can you donate, but you can write off on your taxes, too. So that's mm-hmm. important. And it's coming to that time. And it's coming to that time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is how to deal when shit gets real, guys. And we will have uh, new episodes releasing every two weeks on Fridays. And we'll see you guys next episode.